Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. I'm going to start our sermon off this morning with uh, a little bit of a story, all right? You're actually going to get a couple stories this morning. Here's story number one, okay? Uh, on August 19th in 1944, in Fort Worth, Texas, a baby boy was born. He would then move and spend his teen years in West Virginia, going on to get a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, in Chinese history, and then a Master's in Education. He would show himself to have a deep interest in helping serve others in, as much as I don't like this terminology personally, helping people become the best version of themselves. He even ran a center called the New England Center for Personal and Organizational Development. His passion to help others would never waver, but success in this arena would not come easy for him throughout his life. In 1990, he would share a dream and a hope that he had with a close friend of his, telling his friend that he had a dream to get a book written and published that would inspire other people on in their lives. Eventually, these two men would find an agent who said, hey, I will support this venture, and they would go on to present this book to over 130 different publishers, all of them saying no. Could you imagine the devastation of 130 no's in your face, with many of the publishers citing, no one wants to read a book just filled with a bunch of inspirational stories? Well, they were determined. They persevered. They didn't give up, and eventually a small publishing firm in Florida would agree to publish this book, and I'm sure that company is very glad that they did. This book would go on to sell over 500 million copies around the world. It was written by now-renowned writer and motivational speaker Jack Canfield, and if that name means nothing to you, perhaps you have heard of the book Chicken Soup for the Soul. And now you know the rest of the story. Does anyone know? Does anyone know who I was just quoting there? Now you know the rest of the story? Paul Harvey? Yeah. Okay. I'm like the only, there's only like a couple people. Okay. So Paul Harvey had, that's a true story, by the way, but I had to give a little homage to Paul Harvey. Uh, he was like a guy on the radio for years. And when I was growing up, going to school, Right about the time I'd be eating breakfast every single morning, we had a clock radio that was like 
underneath my mom's cupboard, and we would be listening to Paul Harvey. He'd always come on, and he had a segment called The Rest of the Story, and he'd tell someone's background story, and then at the end, he'd be like, and that was J. Edgar Hoover, or something, and you'd be like, whoa, I didn't know that. So anyways, I just had to do that, because that's how I used to hear stories growing up. But that's not the point, okay? The point this morning is perseverance. What we want to talk about this morning is perseverance. Because perseverance is powerful. Perseverance is powerful. Perseverance can help us accomplish amazing things. And the best part, the thing that I love about perseverance is this, is that you don't need to be very skilled in order to have perseverance. You just need to stick it out. You don't have to be the most talented to persevere. So, what do we need exactly, though, to persevere? Well, most psychologists will tell you that you need a goal, you need an objective, that you need to have fortitude, right? You got to have, like, playing the long game. That's going to help you persevere. And that is true. But what I want to talk about this morning is what about perseverance in faith? How do we persevere in our faith? Now, I'm glad you all came this morning with that question deep on your mind, because this is what our author is going to touch on this morning. Today in Hebrews, we are going to hopefully see two things in our passages this morning. Number one, we're going to see what happens, what is the result when we stop persevering in our faith. If we choose to stop persevering in our faith, what might that result in? So we're going to look at that this morning, and then we're going to look at why and how we can persevere. And here's what I really hope you're going to walk away with this morning. Here's what I hope you're going to see. I hope you are going to see that you cannot spell persevere without the word revere. Because I firmly believe with all of my heart that the more we revere the Lord, the more we are likely to persevere for him. That the greater our reverence is for our king, the greater our perseverance in times of troubles and trials and difficulties is going to be. What we admire, what we adore, what we cherish, what we exalt, what we honor, what we worship is going to drive our perseverance in our faith. The strength of our reverence can determine our perseverance. So, this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's take a look at our passage. We are in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, we stopped at verse 25 last Sunday, so that means we're going to pick up at verse 26. But before we do, we're just going to do a little bit of background on the, the letter of Hebrews, just a quick summary, really, of chapter 10, so that in case you are visiting for the first time or you're listening to our sermon for the first time and you haven't been here for a Hebrew series, you understand where the book has been going and where we come to this morning. So, last Sunday when we were in Hebrews 10, what we discovered as we were getting into this letter is this, is that the tone of the letter of Hebrews has now began to shift, right? The, the, the Most all of the first nine chapters of Hebrews, they are very theological. They are like a defense. They are saying, hey, this is what Jesus did. This is what he accomplished. Uh, look at what the Old Testament said. He did that. Look at the stories and the lives and the events that took place in the lives of these people from the Old Testament. Look at the sacrificial system. Look how Jesus has done all of this, and he's done it better. This is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Okay, that has essentially been what Hebrews has been drawing out and arguing and highlighting for the bulk of these 10 chapters. But now it has shifted from from teaching to now action, right? Last week I said it was going from creed to conduct. And essentially what our author is saying is, hey, if you believe what I have been telling you in these previous you know, nine, ten chapters, if you place your faith in that, now as a result of that, we should be walking out our lives in this way. And so last Sunday, we looked at the four let us statements that we can find in Hebrews chapter 10. And our author says, let us draw near to God, let us hold on to our hope, let us spur one another on, and then he would say, and let us not give up meeting, but let us encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches or as the day draws near. And that is the last sentence, that is verse, that is, yeah, verse 25, and this is our context now as we come in to our passages that we're going to read this morning. So if you don't already have a Bible out, there are a couple, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. Grab a Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, reading verses 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're going to stop there right now for the moment. And this is going to be, this is our first point right here. What happens? What would the result be if we choose to stop persevering in faith? And so what I wanted, this is what our author is discussing right now. And what I want to do is I want to look at that section of passages in two different ways. Right now, I want to look at it first at, through the eyes and through the lens of if you were a Hebrew person who had come to, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and then walked away. So first of all, I want to look at those verses as it would pertain to them. And then I want to look at the verses we just read as it pertains and applies to us here this morning, to us as the church. What do these verses have to say for us as the church? So first, as a Hebrew person who had come to the knowledge of Jesus. So I want to look at it this way because essentially that's exactly who this letter was originally written to, right? That's why it is called Hebrews. Because the original intended audience was Hebrew people or Jewish people or Israelites, either of those terms is applicable, who had grown up underneath the Old Testament, underneath the sacrificial system and the laws. They had spent, let's say they were my age, they were 28. (laughs) Only a couple people were like, that's not true. Uh, 36, uh, I'm not one of those, I hate my birthday person. Um, So 36, could you imagine living under Old Testament for 36 years, and then walking away. Everything you had ever known. This is who our author is writing to. People who had done that, shifted from the Old Testament and the temple, and now said, hey, I'm going to embrace faith in Jesus. 
However, some of them were feeling tempted to give up. Some of them were feeling a temptation to go back to the Old Testament way of living. Why? Well, because the Hebrew Christians were facing harsh and horrible persecution. We're going to find out a little bit later in the message exactly how bad it was. But they were scared, and rightfully so. There was fear and mounting shame publicly that was pressuring them to feel like they should give up on persevering in their faith. And as a result, one of the first things that would happen is these people would stop meeting with the body of believers. That was kind of like step number one to walking away from the faith. They would say, hey, I don't really want to associate with these Christians anymore. I don't want to be lumped in with that group of people because that leads to persecution, and I don't want that. So they were trying not to be associated with them. Now, many of the people who were likely reading the letter of Hebrews, okay, they would have been reading these sections and knowing people who had done exactly that. Right? Like their hearts, you have to think, like their hearts likely would have been broken or they would have just thought about it and been like, man, that's, I can't believe that Ben did that. Yeah, like that's Ben. Ben did that. He walked away. We were just meeting together last month and and praying about and to Jesus and trusting in him. And now he's completely forfeited and walked away. This is what it would have been like for these Hebrew readers. They would have known people who had walked away, but our author's writing this letter because he knows that some of these people are currently contemplating doing the same. They're contemplating following in the footsteps of their friends because if I can just put it Plainly and bluntly, choosing to follow Christ for them was in many ways a horrible decision. The reality is it was a difficult life decision because of the impact it would have on their immediate lives. Now, ultimately, yes, we know that it was the right decision, that you count it all as loss to the joy and the glory of knowing Christ Jesus But we should not overlook and downplay what tragedy would have been on these people who would have walked away from their Hebrew faith to embrace Jesus. It would have cost them their lives. Now, yes, it would have sometimes, in some situations, that would have meant physically. Some people would have died as a result of their faith in Jesus. But in almost every single circumstance, for a Hebrew who walked away from what they had been raised on and now accepted Jesus, it costed their lives in every way that they knew. It cost them their families. It cost them their friendships. It cost them their social circles. It would cost them their jobs, their careers, their inheritance, their home, everything. Like when Jesus was on earth doing his ministry and he told people, you need to lay down your lives in order to follow me, that like they didn't hear it the way that I hear it, right? Like when I used to read that and hear it, when I would read the Bible, I'd be like, oh man, like that's like this, that's like a spiritual idea, right? Like I'll, I'll lay down my life for you, Lord, and then still go home at the end of the day and still be with mom and dad. No, these people would have heard it and been like, absolutely. If I say yes to you, I am saying no to absolutely everyone else in my life. I will be ostracized. This is the reality of the difficult situation that these people were facing. So many of them were still 
like deciding, am I going to persevere in faith or am I going to revert back to the Old Testament way of doing things? And what our author is doing is he is describing to them the result. This is what is in store if that is what you do. If you choose to not persevere in faith, this is the reality of what is left for you. And that is there is no sacrifice left for sins. That is what our author is saying. Now, once again, I want us to try and understand this in the context of if you were a Hebrew person and you were reading this letter, right? Because I said this last Sunday, they would have read Hebrews all in one sitting. They they wouldn't have taken months to piece it together like we do when we teach it in a sermon series. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying they would have read it all in one letter. So for them to arrive at the verses that we're at today, they would have just read within the last like 30 minutes, nine chapters that are highlighting who Jesus is, what he has done, how what he did was greater. Like everything that you've been learning in the last, like however long we've been in the Hebrew series, that would have been in their minds, on the forefront of their minds fresh as they come to these verses. And then their basic, our author is saying, you are gonna, if you forfeit all of that, if you walk away from the fact that I have just told you that Jesus Christ has done everything, he has been a better, greater high priest and a better sacrifice than anything else ever in the Old Testament, and if you are going to walk away from that and go back to the Old Testament, what is left for you? Nothing. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin that is left. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, 18, I believe it was like the climax of all of the arguments that he was making. He closes it off by saying, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. He's like, it has been done. So if you reject that, there is no sacrifice available for you if you are going to return to the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Because that's essentially what they'd be saying. They'd be saying, hey, I don't believe that Jesus shed blood on the cross is good enough. I actually believe it is of lesser value than that of a bull. That is an absolute trampling on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, is it not? And our author is saying, this is the reality of what, in my mind, it would be like this. Let's say these people came to faith in Jesus three months ago, and now it's three months into the future, and they're contemplating walking away, or they are walking away. Because in the flow of Hebrews and in the context of all of Scripture, I could see our author like scratching his head and being like, okay, let me get this straight, let me understand. So three months ago, you said, no, bulls. Don't cut it. The blood of Jesus is what atones. I'm going to accept that. So three months ago, you rejected this sacrificial system. Okay, and you said, this one's good. Okay, and now three months later, you're saying, actually, no, I reject this one. This one's not good. I choose bulls and goats' blood again, and you're going back here. And he'd be sitting there going like, what do you have left? You've literally, in a three-month window, rejected both of them. What does that lead you to? What does that leave you with? Well, what it leaves you with is a fearful expectation of judgment. It leaves you with nothing and no true way of atoning for your sins. In fact, what I really believe our author has been drawing out, what he's trying to drive home, what he wants these people to see, he wants them to understand that what you think you're going back to, that's actually not an option. Because the truth is, salvation is found in no one else, and there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. 
Our author is trying to explain to them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. What our author is trying to get these people to understand is that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is simply telling them the truth that what you are left with when you reject Jesus is no sacrifice absolutely at all. This was a heavy warning for these people. And that warning should still ring true for us today. It is equally as important. So now I want to look at the second part. What is the truth that this passage has for us here today and this morning? Well, the first thing is this. The number one question most people have when they read this section of Scripture is this. It's my first question. I would imagine it's many of yours. What exactly do they mean by deliberately keep on sinning? What, what does that mean exactly? Because if we're honest Christians, we've done that, right? Are there any honest Christians in here? Have you ever, when you've, after coming to the knowledge of Jesus, have you done something you shouldn't have and you did it knowingly? Okay, that's all right. No one. Just me. Okay, it's just me. Okay, Andrew and Peter. So just the pastoral leadership team primarily. <laughs> so... But that's the thing, right? So you should read this and be like, okay, I'd really like to understand what what this says by deliberately keep on sinning. Because if we're Christians, we have done that. But you can let out a sigh of relief because this is not that. The sin that this passage is referring to specifically is of a total and absolute abandonment and rejection of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That's what it is referring to, a deliberate and intentional, and I would add this, a without repentance, a without returning to the cross, absolute rejection of Jesus. The Greek word that we get here to, that translates to give us the word deliberately, it's only used one other time in Scripture. And the other place it's used in Scripture is in 1 Peter 5.2. Now there it's used in a bit more of a positive note. That verse says, shepherd the flock of God among you, watching over it, not because you have to, and the word is, but voluntarily. So in this passage, it's translated to voluntarily. In our passage, it's translated to deliberately. But in both terms, it is talking about something that is like a conscious chosen effort. It is something that you consciously have decided to do. And this verse is talking about those people who have decided. It's like they've read all of Hebrews up to this point. They've heard everything about Jesus. They've weighed the options and they're saying, nope, I full on reject that and I am turning from the truth and I am rejecting the cross of Christ. This is not talking about the type of sin that we just fall into because of weakness. This isn't something that is just an act or even a series of acts. This is a condition. This is talking about like a way of life, a permanent position. It is not for those who know the truth and then fall away, but then come back to Jesus in repentance. So we should all be happy about that because that's the category that we would most likely fall into this morning. So this is not that. What this verse is also not saying or getting to or hinting at in any way is that there could come a day where you could outsin the grace of Jesus. I told you guys this last Sunday. Don't give yourself so much credit. You cannot do it. As long as you continue to hold Christ 
on the cross and to know that he died for you, as long as you continue to cherish his sacrifice, you are never going to come to that day. I love the reminder in 1 John chapter 2 where we're told, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Even if you stop there, you already get a sense that you're just like, so he's kind of suspicious that you're going to, right? But he's saying, I hope you don't. But it goes on to say, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Jesus is your atoning sacrifice, you are covered. You should say amen. Thank you, Lord. If Jesus is your atoning sacrifice, as long as you keep him there in your mind and in your hearts, you are covered. So this verse is not talking about that. But I also do want to say this. I don't want to say all of this about the strength of Jesus' forgiveness and do you a disservice by also not adding this. That as great as that is, guys, flirting with sin in our lives is not a line we want to walk on. That is not a game that we want to play. And when we feel conviction over something that is going on in our lives, over something that we're doing, over an area of our lives, we need to respond. We need to respond. That conviction is the Holy Spirit sent from God trying to tug you, trying to pull you, trying to remind you, this is not who you are. This is not what I'm calling you to do. And I want you to come back and draw near to me. It is your invitation to come back to the life God has for you. And I would encourage you, if you feel that tug in an area of your life, respond. Because you do not want to develop that muscle of rejecting that call. Hebrews has already told us in chapter 3 that we are not to harden our hearts when we hear his voice. Voice. Scripture elsewhere tells us that the reality is it is true. You can, by your actions and the choices that you make, quench the Spirit. Did you know that by the choices that you make and the way that you walk out your life, your conscience can become seared? And I don't want that for anyone. I don't want you to exercise walking in sin for so long that the day comes where one day you are so hardened and your mind and your heart so seared that you can no longer discern the truth that the Lord wants to speak to you. But that is the reality of what happens if we ourselves do not take the sin in our lives seriously. I don't want that for any of you. And I hope we take this seriously because no, no discredit to any of you, but the reality is greater men and women than you and me have fallen. Because they didn't take it seriously. They didn't guard their lives seriously. And I do not want anyone, I do not want a single person, because this is what I know. If I have been entrusted to come up here and stand on this stage, that means God has been entrusting me to share his word with you. And if I am here sharing his word with you, I do not want anyone to one day stand before the Lord and say, hey, no one told me that I should take that seriously. No one told me how seriously I should be about persevering in faith. No one told me how much I should be disgusted 
corrupted by the sin in my life. No one told me that I should turn and come back to you, Jesus, that I should cling to you. I do not want anyone to be able to say that they didn't hear that from me. We need to take this seriously. Because of the reality of what we are left with if we get to that day where we stop persevering and we turn from the Lord. You know, I would love to get up here every Sunday. Oh, it would be so, I'm sure Peter would too in some ways. It would be great to get up here and do nothing but preach about joy and blessings and fun and healing and all of that amazing stuff. It would be great. But here's the reality. I do not want to preach so much about the mountaintops that I don't prepare you for the valleys. Because the truth is, sometimes those things aren't going to be enough to anchor us in those hard seasons. And the truth is, all of that isn't going to be what's standing beside you on that day of judgment. The only thing that's going to be there is Jesus. That is why we need to cling to him first and foremost and above all other things. We need to cling to the Lord. We need to draw near to him. We need to make him our ultimate treasure. We need to revere him so we persevere in faith for him. I'm not saying don't ask for things. Go. Ask. Ask for a Lamborghini. Take me for a ride one day. God is the provider of our daily bread. But what I want you to ask yourself above and beyond this or above and beyond that, above and beyond those things, and I touched on this a little bit last week, and you know what, I'll even say this. I want to ask myself this. What if nothing in your life ever changed? What if your situation, your health, your job, your bank account, your vehicle, your home, nothing. What if nothing in your life ever, ever changed? Would you still be content to count everything all a loss except for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior? That is where I want us all to hopefully get to because like I said, that is what is going to prepare us for that day when we stand before the Lord. And that is what I want to prepare you for. I want you to get a, a bigger house and a greater job. And like I said, take me for a ride in your amazing vehicle. I would love those blessings for you. But at the end of the day, if my only goal is to get things into your hand and not Jesus into your heart, I'm failing you. Because the day you stand before the Lord, I can't come with you. Peter's not going to come with you. The only person you can have come stand with you is Jesus Christ. And he's not going to stand there if he doesn't know who you are. We need to draw near to the Lord. The truth of the matter is, is that for anyone who chooses to walk away from Christ, anyone who chooses to not persevere in faith, this is what it tells us. That choice tells us more about the size of their love for Jesus than it does the size of their struggle. That might seem harsh, but I'm going to say that again. For someone who doesn't persevere in faith and they walk away from the Lord, I believe that tells us more about the size of their love for the Lord than it does the size of their struggle. It's because they were exalting their situation over exalting Jesus. And I don't want that for any of us. Because that day is coming. 
You know, another thing I, I want to talk about quickly is the vengeance of God. Is about that day standing before the King of Kings, the Holy Lord. See, the vengeance of God can be difficult to understand, and I'll just explain this really quickly, because when we hear vengeance, we hear like vindictive, right? But that's not what God's vengeance is. In fact, the very first, if you, and I looked up the dictionary definition, the first definition of vengeance is actually simply this, a punishment that has been, that is inflicted. That's it. It's not in a negative connotation. That's just the reality of what it is. And that's what God's vengeance is. It is simply, this verse is simply telling us the truth that the wages of our sin is death and he is too holy and too awesome to leave sin go unpunished. And that isn't a bad thing, that is a good thing. The truth is we are going to stand before a very holy God with a whole lot of sin and we're going to have to have decided in advance what sacrifice did we accept for covering that sin. And it's Jesus or bust. The second part that I want us to think about when it comes to the topic of standing before God on that day of judgment is simply this. I want us to actually really contemplate and marinate in the strength and beauty and even the fear that there must be in that moment. Have you ever really tried to contemplate what it would be like standing before the King of Kings? And I know that because of Jesus, we are invited to walk in boldly into his presence, but there also should still be a side of reverence to that, a side of awe, a side of I have no right to be here. And I want us to think about that this morning. I want us to consider that a little bit. You know, this wasn't even in my notes. I wasn't going to share this story, but I'm going to. And hopefully I don't freak anybody out. When I was at college, I, I had a season where I, would just, I had a set-aside time every single day, and I just was really pursuing the Lord. Not that I don't do that anymore, but there was just like a very special season in my life. And I would go to the same place in this unfinished basement in the house that I was in on the cement floor. And I was sitting in a, and this is all pertinent to the story, I was sitting in an office chair with like wheels on it. And this is where I would do my devotions and spend time with the Lord. And I can't remember what I was praying for, but it might have been like, Lord, just like give me a glimpse of your glory. Like I just want to like encounter you. And I, I can't explain this. I was praying. I had my head down, eyes closed. And I got a, a picture. And first it just was all black. And then I saw this light coming from like around a circle, like a, a like, it was like the earth was eclipsing this light, but then it started coming closer and closer. And it was starting to just show a silhouette around this circle. And it got brighter and brighter and coming towards me. And for some reason in my heart, I knew this, this picture that I was having in my head. It was God's glory coming towards me. And I literally sat up and I started wheeling across the basement in the chair. And I opened my eyes and it was still there. And I just started screaming out, no, 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 because I asked actually couldn't handle the magnitude of his glory, and that was an eclipsed glimpse of it. If we really understood how holy, how awesome, how set apart, how righteous, how perfect our God is, we would be crushed by the weight of his glory. And guys, that's a good thing. That is a good place for us to be. 
Because the more we come to revere him, the more equipped we will be to persevere for him. I want to read an article I came across this week, and it sums this up so perfectly. Because it talks about this, that understanding God's holiness, it deepens his goodness, it grows our thankfulness, and it strengthens our perseverance. This is what the article says, and it's from, I believe he's a pastor, he wrote a book called, What's So Great About the Doctrine of Grace? This is what he said. The only way to see the greatness of the gospel is to see how bad is our plight. Unless we know what we're being saved from, we really don't grasp the glory of our salvation. It's when we see our lost condition that we most treasure the gospel. The only way someone like you and me is going to be made right with God is by radical grace. And this is what I love. When we combine an accurate appraisal of our depravity with a biblical vision of the absolute holiness of God, we see the gospel in all of its glory. I love this, and I believe this is what our author is trying to also draw out for his readers, that we should consider the weight of his glory, consider his holiness, and understand what is at stake if we walk away from Jesus Christ. It's somber, but it's true. And if it's true, then it's loving. And this is the message that he has for them, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with this warning, but now he's going to jump back in into trying to inspire them and to draw them along. And I got to tell you, I struggle to read the remainder of the verses here in chapter 10 without reading it somewhat like a charge. Like I... Growing up playing hockey, right, there would always be like these motivational speeches that we'd have before games, right, where it was like, you guys got to do this and you got to do this. And remember at the start of the season when you were down by three and then you came out and you won, like it was like this motivational, like, look back, you've got it. You're stronger than you think you are. Like I kind of read the following verses like that, like almost like William Wallace on the hill, right, in Braveheart. Like looking around, being like, yeah, this is the situation. It looks dire, but they can take our land, but they can't take our freedom. Like, I honestly read it like this. This is what our author is doing. And in fact, he's going to just go off like this for the remainder, the bulk of Hebrews. So, verses 32 to 39. Here's what our author says. And I love this because I firmly believe in this moment he's practicing what he's preached. Right? He has told these people, hold on and spur one another on, encourage one another, and this is what he writes. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in those who shrink back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. 
I think that is so powerful. And if you know what's coming in Hebrews 11, can you see the connection? Like the Bible is written so masterfully. It is woven together with such perfection. I love how our author just finished saying, the righteous will live by faith. And guess what? You belong to those who have faith and are saved. And on the heels of this, he's going to dive into the hall of faith. He's going to go off talking about person after person after person after person who conquered, who overcame, and who was victorious because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And right now our author is saying, hey, when you read this, think about yourself because if you persevere in your faith in Jesus, you can do this too. This can be your story. This is the reality if you persevere, if you hold on. Read all these stories. Be encouraged. I love that. I love what our author is saying, telling them not to shrink back. Like, I have to think that their minds would have been blown. Like, could you imagine? Really, could you really truly imagine? Don't just read Hebrews 11 as if, like, that was so cool that God did that back then. Try reading it and being like, he could do this in my life right now. You should be astounded when you read this. And this is what our author is saying. And these people needed this type of encouragement because they were under like, like insane persecution. It was so bad. In fact, in these passages where it says that they were publicly exposed to insult, the word that we translated that saying from in Greek, it is theatrizo. Theatrizo. It's the word we get theater from. They were literally a public mockery of scorn and shame. They were paraded around like a show and insulted because of their faith in Jesus. And now our author is saying, look back. Remember, what you came through was not easy, but one time you stood your ground. You even stood side by side with those that you loved who were suffering. You did it once. You can do it again. You joyfully lost your possessions. Why? Because you looked at them, you counted them a loss, and you said, I have a greater treasure that will never fade nor rust, that moths can never get at, and that is in heaven. You had your eyes on an eternal perspective and you were able to carry on because at the end of the day what they were doing is they were revering those things above everything else going on in their lives they made that their treasure and this is what we should do this is what our author is wanting to tell his writers that where your treasure is there your heart will be also that might be, if your treasure is actually Jesus and it's actually in heaven, this is the only time I'm ever going to tell you this, then follow your heart. Just follow your heart. It's the only time that saying is good and applicable. Other than that, it makes me want to vomit. Sorry, if someone's wearing a shirt that says follow your heart. That would just, just be my luck. Peter's got one on, actually. No. <laughs> But I have little doubt that this is what our author was trying to encourage them to do. You know, I, uh, before I came to DPC, I used to write a lot more than I currently do. I would write some stuff for different magazines and whatnot. And writing has got me to this point, because I never thought this way before. But now when I read scripture, I try and picture the author. 
Like, I, not physically, like, where they were, like, were they using a chisel or quill? No, I try and picture, like, their heart behind what they were writing. Because when you write something, even if you've written an intentional letter to a friend, you pick your words so carefully because you want something to stick, right? And I was thinking about the letter of Hebrews and thinking about the heart that our author must have had and thinking about the passion there was behind this letter. Like, can you imagine, just for a moment, try to, try to imagine someone near and dear to your life, maybe a family member, maybe one of your kids, maybe a close friend, but someone that you have done life with through a season. You have even come through something very tragic in your faith together. You grew in Jesus with one another. Now you're separated from each other. You hear that they're contemplating walking away from the faith, and you're going to sit down to write them a letter. What passion would you have when you put ink to paper? What would be the number one, as you wrote everything, maybe it was pages, if you could choose one thing at the end of that, that you would hope this person, when they're done reading, I hope this is their takeaway. I hope this is the truth that they land on. I believe that what our author in Hebrews is saying is this, at the end of all of this, what I want you to land on and walk away with is Jesus. What I want you to land on and walk away with is the confidence that we should have in what he has done and in what God's word tells us. This is, I believe, the heart. This is why he says, hold fast, draw near, persevere. No matter what is going on around you, cling to God's word like it is all that you have. Because I have to tell you, I have been in that exact place before. I've shared so many times, I'm not going to get into all the details, but this was during a season that I had with my depression as a result of a head injury from a car accident. And I, had to tell, I have to tell you, I had to trust God's word in that season more than I trusted my situation, more than I trusted my fear, more than I literally trusted myself biologically. I was so depressed. I had the biological makeup of Eeyore. There was just a rainy cloud over me 24-7. And, and yeah, I say that because it sounds funny, but the truth is when your spirits are absolutely decimated and crushed, it is, let's be honest, a dark and a difficult place to be. It is great to open up the Word of God and feel something inside, right? When you read that one verse and you're like, He wrote that just for me and it lands, that's great. I love it. God does that. It is great to come in and worship the Lord and, and just be drawn to tears or be overwhelmed with His presence or to like have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you're encountering the Holy Spirit. But what happens if you're in a place, in a situation where that no longer happens? where you don't feel it anymore, where you're so emotionally damaged that you're incapable of feeling anything. I was in that place. And I had to decide, am I broken or is God's word broken? Because the truth of the matter is, what I started to wonder, I'm like, does this mean, because of the way that I feel, does this mean it doesn't work? Right? 
Does this mean he's no longer king? Does this mean he no longer reigns? Does this mean his word is a liar? And I had to sort through that and decide that I wasn't going to let my emotions dictate how I was going to walk through this season because one day, I eventually, I can't remember who said it, I heard a pastor and he said this, what we need to do in our lives is we need to let theology conquer biology. And I had to make that decision that day. No matter what I was feeling emotionally or inside, I had to look around and say, Lord, I'm going to revere your word. I'm going to stand on it. I don't understand everything. I am literally just going to make your word number one in my life and go from there. I had to commit to revere and treasure it. And when we do this, we can persevere. When we stand on God's word as the ultimate authority in all areas of our life and we submit ourselves to it. The level of our reverence can help determine our perseverance because we don't want to be those who shrink back. And I don't believe that is who you are either. We're going to get ready to wrap up here, but as I prepare to do that, And before I call up the worship team, I just want to share a quick story. And I think you're going to understand why I share this story. You're going to see why it's fitting. I want to share a story of a man, and some of you probably may have heard this name before. His name was Charles Templeton. And here is the story. Charles Templeton first professed faith in Jesus in the year of 1936, and he became an evangelist that same year. Almost 10 years later, in 1945, he would meet a man named Billy Graham. And together, they would go on a European evangelistic tour in 1946. During this time, many people actually believed it would be Charles Templeton who would change the world with the gospel. When they would see Charles Templeton and Billy Graham speak, Charles Templeton was viewed by most people as number one and Billy Graham as number two. Eventually... He would make plans to continue his study of Scripture by attending Princeton Seminary. And it would be at this time that he would denounce his Christianity never to return. In 1996, Charles Templeton wrote his own memoir. And in it, he records a conversation that he had with Billy Graham during the time where he was walking away, choosing to stop persevering in his faith. I'm going to share it summarized, but this is what happened. He told Billy Graham that he could no longer accept the biblical description of creation as he found it implausible. And upon hearing his objections, this is what Billy Graham said to Charles Templeton. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, and the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, and there are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries, and I don't have the time nor the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute, so I have decided once and for all to stop questioning and just accept the Bible as God's word. But Billy, Templeton protested, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. If you do it, you begin to die. It is intellectual suicide. Billy Graham said, well, 
I don't know about anybody else, <laughs> but I've decided that this is the path for me. That's an excerpt from Charles Templeton's own memoir. Now, 50 years later, after that conversation took place, still no longer a Christian, a man named Lee Strobel, who wrote the book Case for Christ, he would sit down and have an interview with Charles Templeton. And this is an excerpt from their conversation. Now, how do you assess this Jesus, Strobel asked Templeton. Templeton's body language softened, as if he'd suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking with an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had been displayed as hard and had an edge to it, now almost had a melancholy and reflective tone, and his guard seemed down. He spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words. And he said, Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life and my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the whole world. What would one say about him except that this was all a form of greatness? Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and he was tough. Look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. In my view, he's the most important human being who's ever existed. And that's when Templeton uttered the words Lee Strobel never expected him to hear. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. Two men, two very similar beginnings, and two very different endings. And I want us to hear that as our warning this morning. I hope you hear that in love. I want us to be a church that perseveres. No matter what you are going through. No matter what situation you are facing. Even if you have to stand there and say, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm choosing to follow God's word. I want us to be a little bit more like Billy Graham. I'm going to ask the worship team back up. Church, we're going to worship the Lord now. And I'm going to ask you to sing this song like an anthem. Sing this song over whatever situation, whatever you're going through, whatever season that you are in. This song couldn't be more perfect. If all you can do is shout out the course, I will ask you to do that this morning. Stand on the word of the Lord. Let it reign over every area of your life. Let us draw near to him because we are are a people who persevere. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. Let this be the posture that we carry out into the remainder of our week, Lord God, as we launch off into this week. May we just let you reign over every situation. Let us, you reign over our days and our moments, Lord God. May we be people who regularly take time to check our hearts, to draw near to you, Lord God. And ultimately, may we be people 
who place you not in a seat that you aren't due, that we see you where you are due, seated high and enthroned in the heavens above the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one true living God. And as we keep you there in our hearts and our minds, as we revere who you are, may we be people who do not shrink back. We are not a people who shrink back, Lord. We are a people who conquer and persevere in faith. I pray that over our congregation this morning. I pray that over anyone watching online, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, give us strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming and worshiping with us this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.